0: passion for God, and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church, and now here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. Dr. Eric Klinger, he's a professor of psychology in the University of Minnesota, and he says that each one of us make between 300 to 17,000 decisions every day. Now, most of those decisions are small and inconsequential. We get up in the morning and we have to look at our closet and decide what we're going to wear. We go out to, to eat and we have a menu in front of us and we have to decide what are we going to eat. But the honest truth is that there are some decisions that we make that are, in our life that are big decisions, that are huge decisions with lifelong ramifications. In fact, two of the biggest decisions that uh, we will make in our life are, what are we going to do for our work, and who are we going to marry? Sort of like our work and and our wedding. Now, we have been in a, a series for the last two weeks. This is the third week and final week of this series called Discovering God's Will. And We've been learning about how to discover God's will and live in line with God's will. And it seems appropriate that as we finish up this series this week, we're going to look at how to discover God's will in these two big decisions that every one of us, or most every one of us, faces in life. What do we do for our work, and who should we marry in our wedding? So before we actually jump into looking at uh, some basic biblical wisdom on those two important life-shaping choices, let me briefly remind you of the two big ideas we learned in the two previous weeks because everything we're going to talk about today, and when it comes to discovering God's will, it's all built on this foundation. The first week, we learned this. 95% of the time, When it comes to us discovering God's will and living in God's will, this is the way God reveals his will to us. We put our finger in God's word, the Holy Spirit interacts with God's word, and it reveals to us God's desires, and it forms in our hearts God's desires. If you want to live in line with God's will, keep your finger in the text and let the Holy Spirit work with the text in your life. Really, what happens is the Holy Spirit will form in your heart the desires that God has for your life. And then all you do is you just do what you want to do. You just follow the desires that God has given you. The key illustration we learned was this. How does someone end up being a missionary? Well, because that's what they want to do. But where did that desire to be a missionary come from? Well, God formed it in their hearts as they spend time in his word. And God formed his will in their hearts, and they followed it. That's how we find God's will 95% of the time. But what about the other 5% of the time, where we have those tough decisions, where God's word doesn't reveal a right or a wrong, and God's spirit hasn't formed in our hearts a desire that we should follow? What do we do in those tough decisions? We learned two weeks ago that what we do is we change the question. Do you remember this? We change the question from asking, what is God's will in my life to what is a good and wise choice in my life? You see, it's always God's will that we make a good decision. And it's always God's will that we make a wise decision. So when we're in undecided about what way we go, we just try and focus on biblical wisdom. What is the wise thing to do here? And almost always that presses us through the question, and we end up on the other side having made a good and wise choice that's in line with God's will. Now with that idea that we need to apply some good, solid biblical wisdom to... um, these tough decisions in life, let's go ahead and press into these two big, tough decisions. First of all, work, and then marriage. So if you have your outlines, take them out. I always have a lot of notes for you, and I'm not gonna disappoint you this morning. So let's dive in. How do I discover God's will for my work? A few weeks ago, I was talking with a 19-year-old high school student, and they were just frustrated because they're expected to graduate And then know what they're going to do for the rest of their life when they go into college. You know, what is my career path going to be? What is my major going to be? And they're like, there's just too many options. There's too many things I don't know about. I don't know what I'm going to be doing 20 years from now. And I thought about it a little bit and I said, you know, you're right. You won't know what you're doing 20 years from now. And you're in good biblical company. This is my first point. Remember that God often reveals our vocation over time. And there is biblical character. After biblical character, I could give you an illustration of how God brought them to their vocation, not when they were 19 years old, but over time he brought them to that. Let me take one illustration. Remember Joseph in the Old Testament? Joseph, he had a dream that he was going to rule over his brothers, and he foolishly sort of told his brothers, By the way, I'm the young guy, but I'm going to be in charge of all of you. Did not go over well. But he had no idea how God was ultimately going to get him to that place of ruling over his brothers. Had no idea that in the front half of his life he'd be betrayed by his own brothers, sold into slavery. Have to avoid the temptations of a seductress. Spend a fair amount of time in jail for a crime he did not commit. Only then, years later, all of a sudden, did Pharaoh move him from the dungeon room to the throne room in one single day. And he ended up in second in command over all of Egypt. Trust me, he did not know that when he was a 19-year-old high school student. He may have had an inclination he was going to be ruling over his brothers, had the dream he was going to be ruling over his brothers, brothers, but had no idea the circuitous, winding path God would use to get him there. And it's the same with us, isn't it? We may think we may know what we want to do. We may have gifts that lead us in a certain direction, but God often has a strange and winding path to get us there. Now, the million-dollar question is, why do you use this winding path, God? Why don't you just reveal to us what you want us to do when we're 19 or 20 years old? I mean, you just take a straight direction path to get there. Well, here's the reason. God is more interested in developing your spiritual maturity than he is in placing you in a vocation. God is more interested in developing your spiritual maturity than he is in placing you in a vocation. Go back to Joseph and think about him. So you read the text in the Old Testament because we studied the book of Genesis. We remember this that we learned Joseph may have been a gifted leader when he was young, but he was also a bratty, spoiled, rotten teenager. The guy with the coat of many colors that nobody else has. I'm dad's favorite son. If you were to put him in second in command of Egypt when he was young, it would have been complete and utter disaster. But being sold into slavery, spending life as a slave, spending life in jail for a crime he didn't commit, all that kind of stuff really ground off the sharp edges in his life. And it made him a kind leader, a humble leader, a gentle leader. You see how God used that circuitous part of the front half of his life to repair him for the vocation in the back half of his life? Folks, God is doing the same things with you and me. Sometimes we go through windy front halves of life, but God is not wasting any of it. He's using it to prepare us and shape us, to take us where he wants us to be, to have us do what he wants us to do. So if you're a 19-year-old high school student and you don't know what your proper career path is, you're in good company. Because most of the people in the Bible didn't either. Next thing to look at. Number two, God plans to use my gifts and talents. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. And to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit For the common good. Two weeks ago, when we were last in this topic, we, we looked at this. We learned how God, in his grace, has uniquely gifted each one of us with different physical characteristics, intellectual characteristics. Some of us are very sharp. Some of us have musical gifts and talents. He gives us all different kinds of shapes and skills and gifts, and he does that for a reason. He gifts us and shapes us the way he wants us to be because it's integral to us being able to accomplish what he wants us to do in our lives. So if you want to find what is the right work, you find what is the right... What are the, the gifts and skills that I have? What do I enjoy doing? What do I find myself gifted at doing? And then lean Lean into those gifts and you're heading in the right direction where God wants you to go. If you aren't sure what your gifts are, you know who you talk to? Talk to people that you trust and say, what kind of gifts and talents do you see in me? Let them affirm that and let them help you lead into that. But here's one thing I want you to notice from this text we read in 1 Corinthians. When it comes to the gifts and talents we have, they are not given to us so we can serve ourselves. You notice that? They are given to us so we can serve other people. So the question we ask is not just what do I enjoy doing and what am I good at doing, but what do I enjoy doing? What am I good at doing that is actually helping somebody else? That's serving other people where they are being blessed by it. They are being encouraged by it. That's what we want to lean into. Something that serves others. Now let's move on to the next question or the next point. Uh, Pursue work that aligns with my motivations. Okay, we know that we want to, the work that God wants us to do is going to be intricately uh, connected with our gifts and talents and shapes, that's serving other people, that's being affirmed by other people. But then we have to ask ourselves, you know, am I actually any motivated to use my gifts or not? You see, there are some gifts that we have, let's be honest, that we're motivated to use, and some gifts we have that we're not nearly as motivated to use. Non-motivated gifts, you may have them but they're not necessarily going to help you get where you're going or what God wants you to do. I'll give you an example. When I was in high school, I was a wrestler. I didn't have a lot of background. I wanted to be a good wrestler. I trained. I worked hard. But to be honest, I was just average, nothing special. (laughs) I won some, and I lost some. But we had one guy in high school. His name was George, and I had major gift envy of this guy. I mean, he was a really good wrestler, super gifted and talented. His parents had started teaching him wrestling when he was a little kid, and he would win almost everything. But, you know, about his sophomore year, he just started saying, I really just don't like wrestling anymore. I don't want to do it. In fact, he dropped out, never finished his senior year with it. You see, he was gifted, but he wasn't motivated. In the sport anymore. He was burned out when it came to the sport. See, the honest truth is, God wants us to lean into something that we're motivated by, not just that we're gifted by. The honest truth is that if you have to uh, compare two different people, if you find somebody with a weaker gift, but they're motivated, they will always be a better hire than somebody with a greater gift that is less motivated. Because motivation is what drives you, and if you don't have that motivation, you won't be able to get the work done. One of the things that we've wrestled with on the leadership board is, as we've looked at, sometimes uh, in our jobs, we've had split job descriptions. We've you know Here's the job, but it involves two facets to it. And one of the things we've learned is that people will always gravitate to the side of the job that they are motivated to do. They will stay away from the side of the job they're not motivated to do. So this makes split job descriptions a really difficult hire. Not that you can't do that, but they have to be motiva- motivated on both sides, not just one side. You know, I'll give you a little um, testimony about myself. I learned this, by the way, when I was in college, Some of you knew that I grew up and I always wanted to be a computer programmer. Uh, It was my goal. It was my job. I really enjoyed computers. I worked for AT&T Technologies when I was in high school and in college. I landed a job at IBM before I was out at college. I was a programmer and I I achieved my goal even before I got to my senior year, but I had this problem. I got there and realized that um, I was going to spend 40 years of writing code in a cubicle. And I was, had some gifts at it, but I had no more motivation to do it. I just didn't desire to do it anymore. It wasn't what I thought it was going to be. And I had this thing going back and forth in my heart. You know, what I was really motivated to do was I wanted to tell people about Jesus. I wanted to tell people about God's Word. And so I ended up uh, dropping my internship. Finishing up in college, and well, you know the rest of the story. Here I am. But that's sort of like it is. You don't want to just lean into gifts that you're, things that you're motivated, or excuse me, you don't want to just lean into things you're gifted to do, but ideally, you want to lean into things that you're also motivated to do, that God is giving you some energy to do. Number four, consider the world's needs, not just my desires. So it comes to a career. You've tried to lean into what are your gifts and the way God shaped you. You've leaned into what you're motivated to do. But then you also have to ask, does anybody actually need me to do this? (laughs) Because when you're done, you have to be able to serve people. That's the whole goal, isn't it? I'll give you an example. Say you love 18th century literature. You love these classical novels. You're gifted in understanding them and writing about them. You've been educated in classical literature. You're motivated for classical literature. You get out with your degree. What in the world are you going to do with a degree in classical literature? Now, I'm not going to say there's no place that you can do anything with that. Obviously, there's something you can do with it, but it's a very small set of where you can serve people. You have to ask at the end of the day, My job should do a great job of serving other people. Let's jump to another idea. We've talked here at the front end about how to figure out what is your right career path. Now, let's just say you've figured out what is the right direction to go. Now you're an adult, you're out there, you're trying to figure out what is the right job to take. Let's look at three little bits of wisdom on how to find and take the right job. Number two, how do I discover God's will for a specific job? Number one, the job should provide for my family. 1 Timothy 5.8, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Men, we have a responsibility to provide for our family. You may have a job that you're gifted to do. You may have a job that you're motivated to do. You may have a job that is actually meeting the needs of people around you. But if it's not paying you enough to survive and enough to take care of your family, you got to sit there and say, "Mm, maybe this isn't the right job for me because I have a responsibility to care for my wife and children, not just do what I enjoy doing. Ten years ago, uh, before uh, Cindy and I and the kids came here to Crossman's, we were looking for uh, churches. We have sensed that God had us in the position of moving. And we were actually contacted by a a church in California. And they wanted to fly us out uh, to see if we would be a good fit for their position. Now, already I was seriously tempted to take this job before I even went there. Because at the time, we were in Michigan in the winter. And they flew us out, and it was California. The place we stayed had orange trees in the yard. I'm like, this is a job made in heaven. Perfect. And it was a nice church. I'd be over a variety of staff, and you're thinking, oh, this is so perfect. And you get out there, and they looked at the salary package. And I'm like, okay, well, that looks like a great salary package. And then I looked at the cost of housing. In California, and we came to a screeching halt. Because here was the problem. I had lived in a parsonage. I didn't have any equity built up. We were starting from ground zero. I had three children. My wife uh, had just was just coming into remission out of lupus. She we had agreed for her to be a stay-at-home mom when the kids were young. She didn't have a ton of energy. And we would be forced into the fact it would be a a dual income family from day one. I was like, I was going to try to keep you home for the kids. And I know you're weak. You don't have a lot of strength. And we ended up turning the job down. Because it wouldn't allow me to provide for my family in that housing market. Now... In the long term, I'm so thankful because it ended up bringing us to Crosswinds, which I love you guys. I am so grateful that God brought us here. And I say that totally, totally authentically. Um, The only thing I would change would be that California summer. I wish we could keep that. Um, Or California winter, I should say, because it felt like summer. But you see, um, we have a responsibility to do that. And sometimes you have to realize that, you know, the job may not be the right job for me, even if I like it because I have to take care of my responsibilities. Number two, consider the complications that may come with the job. You may be gifted for a position. You may be motivated for a position. It may be reading a real need out there. You may even have a great salary that goes with it, but then you have to say, what are the complications that can happen if I take this job? For instance, you move to that community. You have to say to yourself, is there a solid Bible teaching church that I can be a part of? I don't think it's a wise choice to move into a community when you don't have a good spiritual home to build into your life, and if you're married, to build into your wife and your children's life. Another complication you have to ask yourself, does this job have too much travel? Now, some people can handle travel better than others. I realize that's just the way their family works together, and that's okay. But you have to ask yourself, does this job have too much travel that will keep me too far away from my family? That we may have the money and the gifts, but it's just deleterious to us. A biblical example of this comes from Genesis chapter 13. Remember Abraham and Lot, they were both herders, and their herding business grew to the point that they couldn't be together anymore. We find in Genesis 13, they decided to part and head in different directions. And Abraham said to Lot, you choose first. And Lot looked over to the Jordan Valley, the lush Jordan Valley that the scripture says was well watered like the Garden of Eden. Wonderful place. Lot saw that beautiful pasture land, his flocks, and he said, well, this is going to be an easy career move. I'm going there. And he headed in that direction. And Abraham went in the opposite direction, which wasn't quite as lush and green and nice. But Lot didn't consider the complications of moving into the cities of the valley, like Sodom, wicked, evil, Cities, not a great place to raise his children, (laughs) not a great place to have his wife. And if you know the story about what happens to Lot and ultimately what happens to Sodom, you knew you know that was a disastrous career move. Because he never considered the complications that would come along with taking that job. So I just want to look at those things. What are the complications? Number three, I need to pray and seek counsel before making the final decision. Always make sure you do that. When you seek counsel, make sure you seek counsel from godly people who can help you think through what are the right questions I should be asking? What are the right things that I should be considering? It's very scary to make these decisions in complete isolation because there's just blind spots we have. That's why we need one another, and God put us together in the church. And when I say pray, uh, I don't mean just pray, oh, God, may I get this job? You pray, God, help me to be wise. Help me to see this job for what it really is. Because you know that when you get a job, you find out it's something different than you expect? And You say, God, help the employer to be wise and help, me to see, help them to see me for who I really am. I don't want to be here if I'm the wrong person to serve them. So you pray for wisdom. And then what do you do? You make your decision. Because it's always God's will that we make good and wise decisions. And that's oftentimes how we figure out what He wants us to do for our work. Now, let's jump into this other half. Marriage. How do I discover God's will for my wedding? And probably of these two choices, this is the one that Christians agonize over far more than any other. Who is the right person for me to marry? Now, the first question you want to ask yourself as you approach this is, number one, decide if I want to get married in the first place. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 8 through 9, To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single, as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Paul says it's okay to be a celibate single. It is. Some people are actually gifted by God to be a single celibate person. Now, in our society, there's tons of pressure to get married. And if you don't get married, people begin to think that you're weird or you have some kind of strange sexual desires. That's not necessarily true at all. Just maybe God has given you the ability to be a single person. And if you have that ability, well, there's a lot of good things that can come of it. When you don't have the burden of caring for a wife or a husband and children you can devote yourself more fully to a particular job. Paul was a single celibate person. His singleness and his gift of celibacy enabled him to devote all of his energy to the spreading of the gospel throughout the ancient world. And we are all literally in serious debt to the fact that he was able to do that, aren't we? Look at our letters in our New Testament. So many of them are coming from Paul part of it came out of that gift of singleness and celibacy. Now, the reality is why some people have that gift who are single. Most people don't have that gift when they're single. They have a burning desire to get married and they're single and they're celibate only because they haven't found the right person. Now, I know that is a very hard thing. Especially if you're in your 20s and you want to find the right person. It's hard. But I want to also tell you while single celibacy with a burning desire to get married is a hard thing, it's oftentimes a very good thing. You don't see it at the moment. But when you look back on it, you'll see how God used that time in a good way to mature you and prepare you. Let me speak a little biographically here, or autobiographically, I should say. When I was in college, I really didn't have much in the way of girlfriends, and I was pretty bummed about that. When I was in graduate school, I didn't have much in the way of girlfriends, and I was bummed about that until I met Cindy at the very end of my graduate school. Now I look back, and boy, am I (laughs) thankful— that I didn't have the constant concerns and going on of a girl that I was dating at that time. Because, guys, I needed all the time and energy I could muster to study. <laughs> I did. So God, in his graciousness, kept me single until the right time, when I was about ready to graduate, and I met my, the woman who's my wife. Same thing for my wife, Cindy. Some of you know her testimony. She became a Christian at age 25, and she broke up a relationship she was in, and she was a single celibate person for three years. And she describes that as the hardest three years of her life because guys would ask her out, and she would say, not a Christian, nope, again and again. But she also says those were the best three years of her life because she kept her finger in her Bible. One of the things I loved about when we met, we, she opened her Bible, and it was completely falling apart, totally covered in highlights. I mean, like chapters were falling out because she had it open so much. She grew like a weed on a hot summer day in those three years. And she says, I am so thankful I was single. I didn't have the worries and concerns of a boyfriend in my life at those times because I needed that time to grow to mature and prepare me. And then God in his wisdom brought us together at the right time. Now, you're a celibate single and you desire to get married. You just can't find the right person. What should you do? Well, here's what you do. Pursue marriage like you're finding a job. Now, I know, ladies, you're not going to like when I say that because it's not very romantic. I know it's not romantic. It's just practical. You pursue marriage like you're finding a job. When you're going to find a job, what do you do? You go to job fairs where there's employers that are offering jobs. When you're trying to find a job, you network, don't you? You talk to friends who may know of a company that's going to hire. You network and you talk with people. Now, Ladies, you're home, and you're saying, God, will you please bring Mr. Right into my life? He will not magically show up on your doorstep. He doesn't. Men, you're asking God to bring a wonderful woman into your life. He will not take her out of your side from your rib. Happened to Adam, won't happen again. You need to get out and meet people. Example, simply... Go to places where other Christian singles hang out. We talked about finding a job at a job fair. You go to a young Christian singles group. You don't go to the bar. You won't find them there. You don't go to Tinder. You won't find them there either. You go to something that is taking place in the church. That's what you are looking for. I'll give you a... A little idea here. Say you're in a church that doesn't have an active singles ministry. Like we do not have an active singles ministry here at Crossman's. But we want to have an active singles ministry. And hopefully we'll get there. What do you do? Young singles, typically what they do is they withdraw from church and they stay uninvolved in church. And that is absolutely the wrong thing to do. What you do is you get yourself involved, become a greeter, well, work in the coffee bar, become an usher, get yourself involved in God's family. And what starts to happen is you start to network. People know you as a young Christian single, and they know your character. And you know what happens? Other young Christian singles who are also pursuing Christ will be doing the same thing. And those are the people you want to meet. And God will put you together. And have you cross paths that way. And that's oftentimes how you meet. I'll give you an example out of my life. When I was 25 years old and I had moved to Chicago, um, something clicked in my brain. I'm like, you know, I am done this dating scene. I am not looking for a date anymore. I realized I'm looking for a wife. And I, Totally stopped pursuing this whole thing romantically, and I began pursuing this whole thing analytically. I know this doesn't sound very romantic, but it's practical. And I said, "Okay, uh, where is the best Christian singles group in the Chicago area?" Well, it was Willow Creek Community Church. Okay, gonna go to Willow Creek Community Church, and I'm gonna start to meet people. It's my job fair, and when I'm there, I'm I'm trying to find somebody who's involved in church, not just attending. Church occasionally. Well, guess who I ran across? The lady is my wife. And that's how God put us together. So you pursue marriage like you're trying to find a job. Uh, Number three, this should go quickly, but mention this: determine to only date and marry a growing Christian. Uh, 2 Corinthians 6, 14 says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness. Maybe this is sort of axiomatic. We're in the church, but I have to mention that one because I have talked to too many people who are very content to be unequally yoked. Don't go there. It'll be a disaster. Number four. Know the difference between the essential and desirable qualities that you're looking for. The Bible says angels do not marry, nor are they given in marriage. So the moment you think you found the perfect person, you haven't. Honestly, nobody is the perfect person out there. The only reason you think somebody is perfect is because you don't know them well enough. That's the honest truth. Because the closer you get to somebody, the more you know somebody, then all the foibles, the sins, the fears, and all the inadequacies will become eventually known. So you're not going to marry the perfect person. They don't exist. And there's more when you get married. If you thought they were perfect, you'll find out they're not after you're married. It's just the way it works. So what you need to do is you don't just make one list. You must make two lists. The first list are those essential qualities that the person must have. The second list is the desirable qualities that you hope the person might have and be able to understand the difference. I'll give you uh, my list a little bit when it came to my wife. Number one quality on the essential list is I needed to find a woman who was passionately in love with Jesus. That came shining through just immeasurably clear when I met my wife. We started dating one another. She had her Bible out. She was quoting Bible verses. She was all about prayer. I'm like, this is, that's good. She has that essential quality. Number two on my essential quality list was I needed somebody who was kind, compassionate, and caring Somebody who was truly a gentle but a loving woman, and that came out very clearly as we started the date. My dad told me, by the way, that you had to make sure I found a woman who's a good cook. And after she cooked her spaghetti with meat sauce, I knew I had a home run on that one. Um, number four, now this may sound sort of strange, but at the time, I was very into fitness. I was a wrestler. I lifted weights. I just had on my essential quality list. I needed somebody who is into fitness and athletics and who could relate to me on that level. Now, for some of you, that may be a desirable list. For me, it was an essential list because I didn't want us to be on separate pages on that kind of issue for the rest of our lives. And thankfully, Cindy fit that. I'll give you one of my desirables that didn't come true. On my desirable list... Was to marry a woman who came from a great Christian family. My wife doesn't. She's a first-generation Christian. Neither of her parents are Christians. We went to church where she was actively involved in being a Christian for three years, and, and you know, some of the we'd sing the hymns, and I said, You're, "Why aren't you singing them?" She said, "Well, I've never heard hymns before. I didn't grow up with you know, a mighty fortress is our God. All new to me." But you know what, that was on the desirable list, not the essential list. So hey, we can just work with it. Too many people have one list instead of two. Make two lists and understand what are the essentials and don't bend. Number five, focus on being the right person more than on finding the right person. When you make a list of what you'd like to find, Also make a list of what you know you should be. And if you can focus on trying to be that person, the right kind of person, many times God will bring somebody into your life shortly after that. Number six, remember that marriage is for friendship. Super important. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Our culture romanticizes and sexualizes marriage. That's not biblical. The biblical picture it is not good for man to be alone, so I will make a helper fit for him. I will make him his best friend. Men, your best friend is not your dog, it's your wife. Honestly, that's the way it should be. Sexuality is the consummation of marriage. It is never the foundation of marriage. The Song of Solomon says this, which is a very romantic book, which we studied a number of years ago. The Shulamite says this, his mouth is most sweet. In other words, I love to kiss him. And he is altogether desirable. He's hot. This is my beloved, but this is my... Friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. I like to say it this way sometimes to couples. Okay, I know you guys can barely keep your hands off each other, and you really want to get married, but if you were to take sexuality completely out of the equation, would you want to marry this person and be with them forever because they're your best friend, and you never want them to be apart from you? If you can't say that, that's a little flag. Something may be wrong if you wouldn't say this person is just your best friend. You see, what often happens is this. People end up getting married for sexuality, and then middle age comes, and life comes, and busyness comes, and all of a sudden they realize they don't have a friendship. And the marriage tears in half. The foundation is friendship. Let me give you the last two very quickly. The right future spouse will cause me to mature. You should find yourself growing uh, personally, relationally, and spiritually when you're with the right person. If you are a girl and you're dating a man who's still acting like a a young man or acting like a uh, young adolescent and not like a man, that's a red flag. And number three, Be open to receive counsel about your relationships. Sexuality and relationships are oftentimes something that's very personal, and we don't ever like to receive counsel on those things. But let me tell you, we can often be blinded to the reality of the relationship. And if there's somebody you trust, somebody you love, ask them hey, what do you see? Is this a healthy relationship or not? Now, I want to close with this thought. Remember where we began. The two things that I really want you to remember for the rest of your life for this entire series when it comes to discovering God's will are this. Number one, remember it's the Spirit of God taking the Word of God in our heart that forms the will of God in the desires of our life. 95% of the time, that's it. Keep your finger in the text and do what you want. It's what God wants you to do. And number two, when it comes to um, tough decisions, what you want to do is change the question from what is God's will to what is a good and wise decision to make in this tough choice. And almost every time, you'll press through to the right answer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for how your word forms in us, your will so we can follow your desires. Father, we also uh, pray that you would help us to remember to make good and wise choices in the tough decisions of life, especially in the tough decisions of work and marriage. Uh, I just pray that we would honor you in those big decision areas of our life. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at ChristToOurCulture.com Thanks for being with us and may God continue to enrich your life.